Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Two Brothers, One Mike, Season 5, Episode 14. Today we have with us Dr. Becky Nitrogen. Did I do it right? Ah, very good. Okay. Doc, Tony, how are we doing today? Good. You, David, Joe, we do this constantly. Oh, now, doctor. now I'm doing it on purpose. Yeah, no, no. Um, yeah, I, I, I get it. Uh, Dr. Becky, as we can now affectionately call her, um, every show when we have a guest, Joe will ask me and the guest at the same time, how are we doing? And then me and the guest are in a standoff, a stare off, if you will, as who is to, going to answer that question first. So uh, Joe thinks it's comical now uh, to do. Um, but obviously, ladies first and <laughs> guests first, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm here in San Diego. It's not as nice as it usually is temperature wise, a little bit of rain, but um, love this town and really love Southern California. Um, uh, if you give me one second, uh, Coach Tony has done it again, Joe, where I forget to silence my phone. And Dr. Becky, this is for some reason the exact hour when everybody I know is basically out there trying to get a hold of me while <laughs> I'm in the middle of a podcast. So my apologies. But um, we, we don't envy... Uh, we're, we we don't feel bad for you, I should say, out in San Diego, California, as we sit here in the northeastern portion of the United States, where Mother Nature has decided that this is the time to start snowing, uh, as spring is upon us. Um, and I, I literally was in a blizzard yesterday. Um, so so we don't feel bad that it's raining in San Diego. <laughs> uh, um. So, Joe, let me let me say this uh, with Dr. Becky here with us today, and everyone's going to find out exactly what she is a doctor of, and uh, it's about time we've had somebody uh, with this expertise on our show because we have talked about the digestive system. I just kind of gave it away. Uh, I don't know how many shows, but but not not specifically everything about the digestive system, but we've talked about time-delayed eating, intermittent fasting. It's a scary word for a lot of people. We talked about the ketogenic diet. And for all you folks who haven't listened to those shows, we're not a huge fan of it. It's not that there's not a lot of benefits. It's just that Joe needs pizza. So uh, we can't always, but there's so many different benefits with it. But we've talked about that, Joe. We've talked about calories versus insulin. And my take on that, as far as what I agree with and disagree with, and that's just as a specialist in fitness nutrition, I do not have the extensive background that today's guest has. And so I think, I mean, what do you think? I think this is absolutely fantastic that finally we have somebody on the show that can give so much more insight when it comes to the digestive process. Yeah, I mean, we talk about, you know, all the benefits of fasting and what have you, but at the same time, gut health is is like the big buzzwords these days. And yeah. so, yeah, I think it's great that we finally have somebody on who could probably elaborate far more than you and I would be able to without just just weeks and weeks of research. Okay. I, I I agree. I think Dr. Becky agrees. Um, anytime we have somebody, Dr. Becky, brand new on the show, um, we've had guests that have been on six or seven times now. So our viewers and our listeners become acclimated with understanding who they are, what their background is. But uh, they, like you, had a first time on our show on Two Brothers, One Mike. And I think it's always great uh, for our listeners and our our viewers to get maybe 
a background of you know who Dr. Becky is, uh, and and so much more that we'll get into as the show goes on. But but for the most part, maybe you could just start off with maybe um, a history of, uh, for instance, I it is my understanding, and we've spoken several times before the show tonight. Uh, that your family in general has an extensive history in a medical field background. So maybe we could just start from there and kind of fill everybody in on who Dr. Becky is. Sure. Th- thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, my family, very medically oriented. In fact, when I look at like even extended family now, I probably have like 14 pharmacists in the family. I mean, aunts and uncles, my mom and dad, grandpa, um, cousins, you know, you name it, people just really gravitated toward pharmacy. But we have a lot of doctors, we have veterinarians, we've got nurses. So when I was growing up, my mom and dad, they had their own pharmacy. It was like a mini Walgreens back in the day. It was called Edwards Pharmacy. So my my dad's uh, last name, Edwards. So Edwards Pharmacy was like a, a mini Walgreens. And so there was the pharmacy section. And this was back in the day where you didn't have automatic pill counters. Like I would be back there counting pills, you know, <laughs> with my mom and dad. And then I'd be run the cash register up front. And so there was a whole section of dairy and food and then over the counter prescriptions. There was a Hallmark section. And then my dad had a gas station outside and a barber shop. So, you know, I grew up in this environment and we actually had um, our apartment was above the pharmacy. So I grew up in the pharmacy, basically, you know, just helping with everything I could possibly help with, including um, stealing Maybelline when my dad, my dad had a whole makeup section of Maybelline. And so my friends were like, well, you know, there's so many drugs down there. So I'm not interested in the drugs. I'm interested in the lipstick up front. <laughs> so, but I loved growing up in that environment because I learned a lot and it did give me that kind of focus. I knew I wanted to do some facet of medicine as I got older. Uh, and and I have to tell you, my ADD kicked in um, when you started talking about pharmacies. And uh, I know right now Joe may be shaking his head, um, but um, we had a pharmacy that was located right down the street from us when we were growing up. And as soon as you said about stealing Maybelline from the pharmacy, <laughs> I, I, I it, it immediately reminded me of as I go completely off track. And here he comes now onto the show from the abyss. Um Come on, man. Joe, why don't you tell Joe? Tell the story about Hackley's Pharmacy. Come on, you could do that real quick. I I, I want to say I was two or three years old. This gives you a, a little, which is amazing that his mind, pro- his thought process can go in this direction. <laughs> but go ahead. It was amazing, wasn't it? No, uh, it gives you an indication of the times where my brother, who was four years older than me, walked me down to this pharmacy. But you could do that back in that time, back in that day and age. Okay, uh, not worry too much. And uh, uh, I, I had this thing where um, every time that pharmacist would turn his head while people were buying candy, I would start snatching matchbooks off the top. I'd do, oh, <laughs> oh, to light matches and start fires. Yeah. And, and a lot of people thought that 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 the writing was on the wall. <laughs> uh, and, and fortunately, no. Fortunately, no. Um, uh, not not without incidents, though. There There were some. One that I will maintain to my dying day, I was completely innocent of. However, there's others. Uh, <laughs> others, I was caught with the uh, smoking gun, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but that said, yeah, that was that was good times. Good times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I just as soon as she said that, I said, "Wow, this is just reminding me of Joe and his heyday at age three, heading down to Hackley's Pharmacy. I think there was a bag of Doritos involved in that too." Could have been. It was whatever I could fit in my diaper at the time. 
<laughs> you know, I so, remember some really interesting things about the pharmacy because it was located in a rural area. So we were outside of Pittsburgh, but we we're about 40 minutes outside of Pittsburgh and in a real country area. And so this is back in the day that like, okay, the front door would open and like one of the local farmers would come in with like a big thing of eggs or a big thing of produce. And they would go back and they would barter with my dad. You know, can I have my penicillin? I'll give you a bunch of eggs. I'll give you some produce. And you would always know when that farmer was in the pharmacy because they always tracked all the manure in. So it just smelled the whole place up. But I mean, this is back in the day where you could actually haggle about, you know, I'll give you this and give me my prescription. And I certainly can't do that anymore. But there were some really good memories about growing up there. <laughs> I think they should bring that back. The old, good old bartering system, I think, would be fantastic. Um and, and so, you know, these are stories that, that you could tell forever, right? These are stories in our memories as children that when we get to where we want to get to in life, uh, if we ever get there, um, you know, where we strive to get, uh, you always remember things like that because that's part of who you are. So, you know, it's not just a great story to tell. It is part of who Dr. Becky is um, and, and where her journey starts and then her journey takes her, you know, to high school. And then now where, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in California? Was that in? Oh, actually, you know, I was, my dad was a Lieutenant in the army. So I was actually born overseas in Italy. So the first couple of years of my life were over there, which I don't remember, but, um, came back and then, uh, they just settled outside of Pittsburgh because there was some family in that area. So I basically grew up in, in Pittsburgh, that area, like more of the rural part of the, that area. And then when I went to um, college, I went to a place called Washington and Jefferson College, which is in Washington, Pennsylvania. So real close to the West Virginia border and outside of Pittsburgh. And so that's, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh mainly and then, you know, then went off to college. And then I landed in Philadelphia for med school. So a place called Hahnemann Hospital and University. And a lot of people never even heard of Hahnemann, but it was kind of in that central location where you had Temple down the street and there was Hahnemann, and then Penn, and then Drexel. So it was in the heart of downtown Philly, where I spent seven years there. So I did my four years of medical school in Philly at Hahnemann, and I stayed for my internship and two years of residency. So I lived downtown Philly for seven years, and that was a zoo. <laughs> like, nice. was crazy. <laughs> so, and and so you you did your college, so you did everything right there, your, your college, your residency, your internship. And you got into a field, gastroenterology, uh, which is going to be something we're going to talk a lot about today. What what was it that pushed you in that direction? Was there what was the passion that that pushed you in the direction of wanting to be a gastroenterologist? It's a good question. Um, you know, when you're going through med school, and especially like your fourth year of medical school. You'll do a lot of different rotations, meaning like you'll do eight weeks of a surgical rotation, four weeks with neurology, four weeks with cardiology, pulmonary, um, you know, all the different subspecialties. And I remember doing my four weeks with the GI group, the gastroenterology group, and very male-dominated field. So I was one of very few women that ever did that rotation, right? But I loved the guys that worked in gastroenterology. They were fun. They were smart. They were great with their hands because you have to do colonoscopies, upper endoscopies, ERCPs. You're, you're working with that eye hand coordination all day. Um, they were just, they loved life. They were just, they were fun to be around. So that was like a big thing. I really liked that. Cardiology didn't really connect with that group very well. Pulmonary, that's what my first husband went into and he connected really well with that. 
But surgery, I didn't like wearing the hat, so I wasn't going to do surgery. So I just didn't gravitate toward anything except for the GI group. So then I started to spend more time with them and started to go to the clinics. And what's interesting is because it's such a male-dominated field is that women would gravitate toward me in the GI clinic. And I would sit and talk with them, learn about them, and they'd be like, I'm so glad you're here because I can't tell a male doctor about my gas or about my bloating or about my nausea or about my diarrhea or blood in my stools or abdominal pain. They're like, they just didn't feel comfortable talking to a male physician about these really sensitive issues with their GI tract. So I started to attend those clinics. And even in during my internship at residency, I would like kind of just moonlight over there. I didn't get paid, but I wanted to be in the GI clinic because I really liked the patients and the women really loved me. So um, that was basically the driving force is just being able to help women, also men. But you know what? The women were really gravitating toward a female GI doctor because they had never even talked to one before. So that was the big thing. And plus, I just I love the personality of that group. You know, we just get called ourselves the butts and guts doctors or the ass and gas doctors. We just had fun. You just can't take yourself too seriously when you're in GI. You know, you see a lot of crazy stuff. But yeah. I, I really just, you know, loved the field from the get-go. And that's why. So, so let me ask you this. Now, at this point in time, when you, you know, you do your residency, you do your internship, and you get into this field, and you meet this group of people that I think that happens in everything in life. I mean, a lot of people, uh, it's not just always that you have a passion. When I started to get a passion to be a professional trainer, there were a lot of people that molded me and put me and pushed, you know, pushed me in that direction that I loved watching what they did. And I became interested in it because of the passion that they had and because of their ability to connect with me. So I completely understand where you're coming from, from that standpoint. When you talk about women being more comfortable because finally, you know, there was a woman that was involved in gastroenterology. Was this a, a point in time in the medical field where women were taking a bigger stance and not, you know, there was that stereotype way back in the day, woman, nurse, man, yeah. doctor, right? Uh, was this at that point in time or was it a point in time where it just, this particular field did not see a lot of women in it? You know, it it was just, it was male dominated at that point everywhere. Like really there were not a lot of women in GI. It just, it just wasn't happening. And I'll, and I'll tell you a cute story. So when I did my, my four years of medical school and then I did my one year of internship, two years of residency. So that was seven years in Philly that I knew I wanted to do GI. And so I went around the country, interviewed at all these different programs, all, all through California, on the East Coast, Midwest. And then when I landed at the University of Arizona for my interview, I'll tell you what happened. This is a good one. So I show up for my interview, right, for GI, to be a GI fellow. That tells you another term there, fellow, fellowship. So anyway, so I show up and there's about, I'd say like 30 men in the room, like you know, all my age, you know, and I'm the only woman. And we're all there to learn from the GI doctors here at the University of Arizona about where we're going to interview today, taking a tour of the facility, the GI, blah, blah, blah. So I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm, I'm a wreck, you know, I'm nervous because this is like a really big interview and they have a really good GI program, very, very well respected. So Dr. Samplinger is the head of the department at that time. So Richard Samplinger walks in and he introduces himself and he's just explaining about the hospital and we're so glad to have you all here. You're going to interview with the entire department. Um, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that and you're going to love it. And then he finishes up 
And he walks to me, he walks right to me, and he puts his hand out. And so I shake his hand. And he goes, thanks for bringing the sandwiches. Bye. He thought I was was the driver. And I said, and I, so I'm looking at him and I'm I'm like, I didn't even know what to think. You know, I'm like, I didn't, I sound pretty cringe. Did you cringe? So he looks, he turns around and he looks at his, you know, his clipboard and he goes, oh my. He goes, I didn't know we had a woman interviewing. I said, have you ever had any women interview here? He said, no. I said, how many women practice GI in all of Arizona? He said, one, she's in Phoenix. I said, well, you need me. And so basically what I joked around and I interviewed with the whole group, they ranked me number one. So I, I was the, their number one pick because I had, I had fun with them too. I'm like, you guys need me. Don't you get it? There's no women out here. And so yeah. you're right. Because yeah. at that time, you know, everyone that saw me, like if I didn't have my stethoscope on and like a coat or something with my name on it, I was dietary, I was pharmacy, I was physical therapy, I was, you know, basically everything but physician because they weren't used to having female physicians at the University of Arizona. So that was a really interesting day. But the other thing too is you do a year at the university and you do a year at the veterans hospital. Okay. Well, the vets had never seen a female GI either or very rarely female physicians in general. So that was a trip too. But, you know, I, I loved it there. I loved training at the U of A. And then I stayed in Tucson, Arizona, and I ran a private practice there for many years. And so, uh, how, well, let me ask you this real quick. How did he recover from that mishap he had? He apologized. Uh, just taken yeah. a little bit lightly and, and, and joked about it, and we, we moved on, right? He did. By the time I got to interview with all the doctors in the department, they all had heard, you know, what had happened. <laughs> and they were all just, like, laughing but, you know, prior to that, like when I interviewed like in California and other places, because my last name is an Indian last name, Natrajan, right? Very popular in India. So because they were expecting an Indian to, to walk into the, the interview room, I had every Indian doctor waiting for me when I would walk in because they, they'd have the turbans and they would look, they'd go, you're, you're Dr. Natarajan. I said, yes, I am. They just didn't expect that either. So it's kind of funny that the stereotype of being a woman yeah. and having an Indian last name. <laughs> so we, we had, had everybody fooled had, in the, in the beginning. My, my, you know what? Yeah. You know, I, I have to say sometimes that breaks the ice. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's, if that's the in, uh, I guess that's not bad. Um, <laughs> especially the way they've accepted you. Uh, and the way that the medical field has accepted women in general, uh, I, we have a cousin who is on the cardiology team at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's that's the norm now uh, to see these these type of situations. And um, I think that was inevitable. Uh, and, and it's a good thing. Um, so it's a good thing. Yeah. And GI, there's a lot of women in GI these days. I mean, compared to when I first went into private practice, I was with a big group of men. Um, and then I eventually broke off and started my own practice. And then another woman had come into town. So we opened up a, you know, a dual practice together, two women in Tucson. But now I think there's like five or six women that practice gastroenterology in Tucson and Phoenix has a bunch of them. So yeah, so a lot of women are now getting more into the subspecialties where they used to be very male dominated and not they're they're not so much anymore. Gotcha. Um, I have a question. We're gonna we're gonna go to our sponsor in a second, uh, and an ad, an ad, I should say, in a second. But 
just this is a very general question, and we're going to probably get a little bit more into this when we come back from the from the sponsoring ad. But so people have heard us say gastroenterology and gastroenterologist, and they kind of have an idea when you say colonoscopy and upper GI, and they say, okay, I kind of have an idea, but. Boy, what a general question this is going to be. What does a gastroenterologist do? What is the what are the main points of specialty there? Okay, yeah, it's a good question. Um, when I was in practice, because I've since retired, but when I was in practice, if you would come see me, if you had issues with your esophagus, maybe you had some swallowing issues, you have reflux. Um, if you had stomach issues, then you would come and see me. You know, if you had signs or symptoms of an ulcer. Um, gastritis, that kind of thing. And then you'd come and see me if you had small intestinal issues, colonic issues, rectal issues, anal issues, pancreatic issues, liver issue, gallbladder issues. So basically I was like, you know, top to bottom and in between with the pancreas, the liver and the gallbladder. So I would manage all types of disease states within those areas. So hepatitis, I saw a ton of hepatitis. I saw pancreatitis. I saw colitis ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, lots of cancer, unfortunately, malabsorptive disorders, um, you know, you name it. And I saw it because I had a really busy, busy practice. I mean, a lot of people have GI issues. And one of the big things that I saw every single day in, in so many patients was irritability of the bowel, you know, the gas, the bloat, the distension, the change in bowel pattern, uh, just being uncomfortable. You know, your, your bowels start to rule your life. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens. But irritable bowel was rampant. I mean, I saw so many patients every day with that. So, so that's from the standpoint of my clinic. Those are the types of patients I would see in the clinic. I'd see in the hospital, but you do procedures um, to screen for colon cancer or other colonic issues called uh, colonoscopies. So basically, you know, you have the patient cleanse the colon, and then you have them come into the GI lab. They get sedated, and then I take a look with a scope to see if there's any polyps, any diverticulosis, any cancer, any colitis, those types of things. And then the other end would be the upper endoscopy, where you would sedate the patient and take a tiny scope and go into the esophagus, into the stomach and small intestine to look for other issues, whether it's, you know, reflux, like I said, ulcer disease, malabsorptive diseases like sprue. So I did a lot of procedures. Like every day I did colonoscopies and upper endoscopies. And then some GI doctors go into um, even more of a subspecialty range in terms of scoping. Um, with something called an ERCP, which is a sideways viewing scope that can look up into the bile ducts, all the way up into like the pancreatic ducts and the bile ducts to see if you've got a stone stuck there, if you've got a stricture, something else is blocking the liver. So those procedures like the ERCPs, I just, I never got into them because you had to wear a real heavy, heavy lead gown because there's a lot of radiation. You're taking pictures, you're doing dye shots. So I just stuck with the colonoscopies and the upper endoscopies, and that kept me busy enough. So that was that was just fine by me. <laughs> um, and and I don't. I, there's so much more. I know that that you can add to what you're saying right now. We're gonna hear from our sponsor here, real quick, folks. Thirty second ad. We come back. We're gonna continue this conversation with Dr. Becky and understanding what a gastroenterologist does and how important they are when it comes to our digestive system. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Two Brothers One Mike is sponsored by Kitchen Apps, perfectly prepared portions. Hey, Youngstown area listeners, I know we've talked about Kitchen Apps in the past and all they have to offer in food prepping services and protein pancake mixes, but there's another great product they offer we had to let our listeners know about their own name brand seasonings. 
They've got a huge selection to choose from as well. Turkey, taco, tomato basil, Baja, citrus fajita, barbecue rub, blackened seasoning, as well as steak and meat seasons. And that's just to name a few. You know my favorite part? Besides all of the flavors, of course, it's that they're all low sodium, made with no fillers and MSG free. Know what else is great about them? You can order them right from the Kitchen Abs website. Just go to www.kitchenabs.com. Click on store and choose the flavors of your choice. Again, that's kitchenabs.com. Now back to our podcast. Welcome back, everybody. So I have a question for you. Uh, You just, in that last segment at the end there, you gave so many different situations and so many different diseases uh, and so many different things you do with your practice. Um, What is the most common one uh, when it comes to the diseases that you have unfortunately seen over a period of the last 10, 20 years? You know, irritable bowel would be the number one. Okay. Again, that's just so common because our diets, you know, we, we live in this toxic society and it's a nutritionally bankrupt society, unfortunately. So, and our gut will bear the brunt of that. And so irritability of the bowel is just rampant. And it had a lot to do with people who are not eating right. They're not eating on the same schedule every day. They're eating on the run. They're eating processed foods, nutritionally bankrupt foods. They're not eating their fiber. Um, They're stressed. They're not hydrated. They're drinking too much coffee or soda. So there's so many things that I would see in my practice where I would start to really work with people about, you know, we've got to address your diet. We've got to address your hydration, your stress level. We've got to work on, you know, a bunch of different things because it's multifactorial. So, you know, the saying you are what you eat is is just so paramount. I mean, it's absolutely what you eat that causes the irritability of the bowel. But there's a lot of toxins that bombard our body that can also cause inflammation. So for me, the type of inflammation I would see specifically in a lot of young people is ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease or Crohn's colitis. But Crohn's is, is interesting because Crohn's can, it can affect the mouth the esophagus, stomach, small intestine, the colon, the rectum, the anal area. So it is a very diffuse inflammatory condition in some people. It can be very, very severe. Ulcerative colitis, it's inflammation of the colon, and and you can also have of the rectal area as well. But they're both systemic inflammatory conditions, meaning that you know, I would see you for your colitis, either your Crohn's or your ulcerative colitis, but you may have significant arthritic issues, um, kidney stones, eyesight issues, skin issues, because it's like the whole system's inflamed. And again, I really felt that it's because a lot of what we put in our bodies and on our bodies is very toxic. And so our bodies will start to adversely react to toxicity and also being nutritionally bankrupt and no hydration and blah, blah, blah. So I saw some really significant diseases with that, with the ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. Irritable bowel would be the number one thing I saw in my practice all the time. But I saw a lot of uh, reflux. You know, a lot of people have um, the heartburn. So a lot of that going on. A lot of people with really significant heartburn, hard to treat. And then they would get something called strictures in the esophagus where it gets so inflamed that the esophagus, instead of being wide open, it starts to scar down. So it strictures down and you get food caught in there. So I'd have to go in sometimes pull food out of the esophagus or whatever was stuck in there and stretch the esophagus. So that was also very common. Um, diverticulosis was another thing I saw almost every single day in my practice. Those are those little tiny pockets in the colon, mainly the left side of the colon. 
And they're common because we're, we don't eat enough fiber. So we just, if we're not getting enough fiber and the contraction of our gut is not accurate and it's not precise, it's called peristalsis. So if your peristalsis is always off, then you have more of a chance of weakening of the colon wall and you develop these pockets called diverticulosis. And then if they get infected, that's called diverticulitis. So saw a lot of that. And then unfortunately, I saw a lot of colon cancer because, you know, once you hit a certain age, you'd come and see me in the office and I'd say, okay, you just need a screening colonoscopy. We've got to look for polyps and make sure you don't have cancer. And so most screening colons, they were quick and easy procedures. You know, if you had a polyp, I removed it. If you had some diverticulosis, we documented it. Um, and then you were good for five to 10 years to come back and do another screening procedure. Now they have something called Cologuard. You probably have heard of that where you can get screened through that genetic test. For me, it was always about I need to look in there. I need to see what's going on. And then if we found a colon cancer, then I worked with the best surgeons in all of Arizona and they did laparoscopic surgery. So most of the time you have that colon cancer resected and you'd go home with a little baby scar and a full cure. So, you know, that was pretty, pretty common too. And then hepatitis was rampant. Like when I was in practice, we didn't have a cure for hep C like we do now. And so I, I saw a lot of patients with hepatitis C and a lot of doctors didn't want to treat hepatitis because the patients, they had a rough time with the meds at th that time. The meds were kind of on the line of almost like chemotherapy. So people get really, really, really sick when they're on those drugs. And so they would potentially eradicate the hep C, but a lot of times they didn't. So you had a, a you know patient base that we were, they were always sick, you know, they weren't feeling good at all, trying to eradicate the hep C. And a lot of doctors in town didn't want to deal with that patient base, but I did. I said, I'll take all the hepatology patients so they would come and see me. So I'm telling you, it was a busy practice. It was never a dull moment. And I think the, the most common thing I saw, like when I was in the hospital, like when I got called in, was GI bleeding. So a lot of GI bleeds. And again, it's, it has a lot to do with what we put in our body, what we put in our mouth. So when you think about people that have inflammation and they go to the pharmacy and they get aspirin or they get Motrin, Aleve, Advil, you know, any over-the-counter anti-inflammatory, they're called non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They're not steroids. They're just anti-inflammatories that can damage the lining of the stomach or the small intestine or anywhere. Okay. But if you had an ulcer and it hit a vessel, then you started bleeding. So you either bled, you know, you had black stools from below because that's called melanoma. That usually means it's an upper GI bleed because once that blood goes all the way through and comes out the other end, it's usually black. But I had a lot of patients that, you know, the ER would call and say, you know what, we've got somebody vomiting blood. It was like really common. And every time I was on call, I had bleeders because I covered a lot of hospitals too. At one time I covered seven hospitals in Arizona. <laughs> and on then call. It, yeah, yeah. Um, when I was on call, you know, I was with a big group. I was with a huge group for a while and they covered all these different hospitals and I was just new to practice. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to cover all these hospitals. And so I saw everything. I saw everything you could possibly imagine. And eventually I just moved to one side of town. I just stayed on one side of Tucson. So I just covered three hospitals mainly. And that was a much better quality of life because prior to that, there was no quality of life at all. There's so many questions I can ask you right now from everything you just gave me. Here, here's a couple that, that I stored in my brain as you were talking, um, which is amazing for me to be able to do. Uh, when you talk about fiber, I'm just curious, and I think maybe some of our viewers may be curious as well. 
How much fiber, in your opinion, should people be taking in on a daily basis? About 30 to 35 grams of fiber every day. And, you know, and nobody's really doing it. I mean, I try, you know, my diet is very um, plant and seed based. And so, and I do a lot of seeds like flax and, you know, hemp hearts and pumpkin and, you know, those kinds of seeds because they're really good, not only for fiber, minerals and vitamins, but it's really good for your microbiome. We can talk about the microbiome, you know, whenever you want to do that. But no, fiber is super important. And again, the studies show that, you know, there's a very good chance it's going to decrease your risk of polyps and then potential colon cancer, decrease your risk of diverticulosis and diverticulitis, um, you know, de just allow you to have a better bowel movement to address irritable bowel. Because a lot of people with the irritable bowel, I'd say, well, what kind of fiber are you taking? They're like, huh? <laughs> like, fiber you're doing some fiber and they really were so a lot of my patients i got them on a routine of you know let's bump up the produce obviously but you know let's get you on some flax some ground flax you can add it to your shakes in the morning you can add it to your soups you can put it on your pizza um i don't care what you do but you, you got to get some more fiber in that body because it's going to help your intestines contract better again it's all about this peristalsis so you know if you have irregular contractions of your gut then Obviously, you're going to get distended. You're going to have bloat. You're going to have uh, discomfort, gas. So fiber really, especially flax, in my opinion, is a great balancer for that. It's a really good one. And it doesn't taste like much. It's a little nutty flavor, but you could throw it in anything. Just, you know, you can buy it anyway. I, I have a, a fiber drink that I that I drink uh, usually daily. Um, it's, I think, a, a 10, I think it's 12 grams of fiber okay. uh, in, in the one drink. And it, it really, it's, it's not, uh, it's really, I, I think some people are always, they always say to me, how am I supposed to get in? I, I was close. You said 30 to 35. I always tell people 32 to 36. Oh, there you go. <laughs> potato, potato. Um, but, uh, uh, they always say to me, how am I going to get 36 grams of fiber on a daily basis in my body? And I try to explain to people sometimes it's okay if you only get 20 one day or 25 one day and 15 another and then 35 and then 30 and then, but but the goal should always be 32 to 36. I think sometimes people don't realize that overall it's almost impossible to get exactly the correct amount of macronutrients in your body on a regular basis whether it be carbohydrates, fats or proteins. You're not going to hit that exact number on a daily basis. You're not going to hit that exact number when it comes to fiber. The goal is to strive for that. And you're always going to end up better than if you don't do any of that and right. just eat the Western style civilization that we, the diet that we eat, which is a oh, complete yeah. nightmare uh, on a regular yeah. basis. So I was curious about that. You, you, you are very busy at this point in time that you're speaking of uh, when you were on call between seven hospitals, you also were in the in the uh, the GI laboratories five to seven days a week, mm -hmm. uh, doing colonoscopies and, and other procedures. Uh, how did you? Was that at the same time that you were on call? Uh, well, you know, I didn't have to take call every single day because I was with a big okay. group. Well, I was on call maybe every like five six days, but you know, most holidays. Remember, I was the new person in the group. So I covered all the Christmas holidays, you know, every big holiday I was on call. And those were nightmares because, you know, holidays in the ER, especially with GI bleeding and you know, just all these crazy things, I was running like like a nutcase. So, you know, I did that for a couple of years. I did cover that many hospitals. Like I had to do rounds. Like I get would get up at 4 a.m. 
and I would go to the west side of Tucson, and I'd start at St. Mary's Hospital, and then I'd go to Northwest Hospital, and then I'd gra- gradually do my rounds at all these different hospitals, working my way over to the east side. And then if um, if I was on call, and it was a weekend and nobody else was covering with me, if I got a call back at St. Mary's for a GI bleed, well, I'm going back to St. Mary's. And then if I get called to St. Joe's at the other side of town, I got to go there. So it was really hectic. And, you know, I worked with those guys for two years. It was, again, a really big group. And I said to them, I said, you know, I really love working with you guys, but I'm killing myself and I have a baby at home. So uh, I just decided to open my own practice and go to the east side of town. So there was four hospitals there and then one closed. So I basically had such a better quality of life. But still, you have to start your rounds early in the morning, right? And then usually I'd have clinics. Some, sometimes I have clinic in the morning, and that's my office clinic or office clinic later in the afternoon. But based on how that schedule would be rotating throughout the week, there was times where I had to go see new patients in the hospital. So I had to go do new rounds. And then I'd have patients scheduled for their outpatient colonoscopy or upper endoscopy. So I'd be in the GI lab, you know, almost every single day doing a certain set of procedures. And so sometimes it would be five procedures. Sometimes it would be 15. It just depended on, you know, how busy my clinics were and how many people needed to have these screening procedures as outpatients. And then you had to throw the inpatients in there because then the ER would call. You're like, oh, okay, send that one down. So it was always constant go, 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 go. And I, you know, I did love it. It's just, it was hard to keep taking call and never see your family on holidays. And then the other thing too, is like, you're, you're always trading time for money, money in medicine. You know, you're, you're always trading your time to, to make a living. Right. And so, um, like going on vacation was stressful because I'd go on vacation. I'm like, oh my God. I got to do like twice as many colonoscopies when I get back, twice as many upper endoscopies, see twice as many patients in the office because I'm losing income while we're having fun and I'm not having fun. <laughs> so it it was just becoming a rat race. And and one thing I will share, because I think you'll find this interesting too, mm-hmm. and, and probably not surprising, is when I started in an NGI and I had the, you know, the outpatient, um, you know, with the, that group I worked with and, um, you'd come and see me for a colonoscopy. And based on if you had polyps or not, or if I had to do biopsies, I usually made about like almost $1,000 per colonoscopy. It was a lot of money. It was a lot. So you, you live that lifestyle because you're used to making that kind of income. However, because the HMOs and Medicare and you know all these insurance companies decided, oh, we're not going to pay that much anymore. So every year, your income would go down because you know, like United Healthcare or Cigna Healthcare would say, well, we're not paying you that. So by the time I retired from medicine, I was making less than $300 per colonoscopy. So then, then your brain's like, oh my God, I have to do twice as many now. I can, how am I going to pay the bills? I mean, how, I, how are we going to do this? And so it just insurance changed a lot of things. And insurance really did change. There are some of my surgical friends and they're like, oh, I took a gallbladder out today and made 50 bucks. I'm like, you made 50 bucks taking a gallbladder out. They're like, yeah, that's all we get now from Cigna. I'm like, you're kidding me. And they're like, oh no, that's... We got. I think there, there's a lot of people out there, that, and including me, that don't understand um, the lifestyle of a medical professional, uh, a doctor, a surgeon, specialist. Um, I think there's a stereotype because we watch movies and TV yeah. and Netflix, and we see the doctor in the nice uh, tennis outfit or the <laughs> golfing outfit, and they're just enjoying you know, a, a weekend on the golf course in Bermuda. <laughs> or wherever they may be, and they're they're back in the day their pager or right will go off, 
and they would just say, I'll call the office later. And it, it just seems like it's this, you know, easy, laid back lifestyle. And they're all millionaires. Everybody here, doctor, you're a millionaire. And they, a lot did change when it came time for HMOs and PPOs and traditional insurance and trying to figure that all out as, as a, as a patient, let alone figuring that all out as a doctor, uh, because that is your income. And I think everybody should be able to understand when you are receiving a certain type of income, that's the lifestyle you live. And there's nothing wrong with living that lifestyle if that's your income. And when it is chopped in half or in a third or even more so overnight, uh, I don't think anybody can, you know, not be, you know, kind of in awe to hear one minute you're making a thousand dollars, the next minute you're making three hundred dollars. That doesn't make any sense at all. Uh so so yeah, that's definitely crazy. Yeah, that happened over time. The other thing too with the insurance companies is that let's say you came to see me in the office and um, you know, you have some rectal bleeding. Let's say that you were you know, younger, like in your twenties, okay, and you have rectal bleeding and I really had some concern on a want to take a look i want to make sure you don't have cancer because i would diagnose cancer in, in a lot of young people and so you would say to the insurance company like you know united okay i've got this 25 year old male he's got rectal bleeding abdominal pain i think i feel a mass i need to do a colonoscopy and the insurance companies go no he's too young I'm like what do you mean he's too young he's he probably has a mass in there in fact my neighbor is a prime example my neighbor when she was in her 30s walked across the street to me and she goes I've got a problem. I said, okay, we're going to do a colonoscopy after I listened to her symptoms. And her insurance company refused it too because she was too young, but she had full-blown sigmoid colon cancer. And so, you know, you fight with these insurance companies that they don't know the whole history. They didn't feel your abdomen. They didn't listen to your story. They didn't do, you know, the whole history and physical. They just go, oh, he's 25. He's too young. He's not going to have anything. Well, that's garbage. So that was also another challenge in medicine. So dealing with they're chopping your plans or chopping your reimbursements, but then they're saying you can't do procedures that are absolutely appropriately to be done on these certain patients. It's not like I scoped everybody, <laughs> I, but I, I made the right decision because after talking and examining and looking at all these issues, then that's when we would say, okay, you need this procedure. No I, uh, yeah, I, uh, I definitely, when this show is over today, I'm writing down some of this information because I always, and Joe does this too, we hear things, we talk on shows, and then we're like, wow, there's three more ideas right there for three more shows. Uh, <laughs> and that's definitely another show, even a roundtable uh, via, uh, yeah. via whatever you want to call it, two brothers, one Mike Zoom. Um, but uh, that, I, I, I almost did it, Joe. I always end a very important topic with that being said, and Dr. Becky, I hate when I do that because it dismisses the importance of what was just said. So if if somebody's talking about something as important as you just were, and I say that being said, it's like I'm just saying, okay, whatever, let's move on. Uh, and that is a very important topic that you just talked about because that's the difference between saving a life and somebody, you know, not making it. Uh, no, I had, yeah, I had this one, I'll tell you another story because I mean, there's so many, but um when I worked with the the big group that they had the military contract too. So I'd see a lot of the, the guys from Davis Monthan Air Force Base. And I remember this one young gentleman came in. He was young. He was in his early 20s. And um, he had very severe issues with rectal bleeding, rectal pain. 
And I did an exam, just a rectal exam on him in the office. And he, I could feel the mass. And I knew he had cancer. And I said, have you talked to any doctors at the base about this? He goes, yeah, because I've seen a ton of them. Because they just won't do anything. They say I'm too young. I'm like, so they, they, they basically ignored this kid. And by the time, you know, I got, I got to see him, his cancer was metastatic. So that it's just really, it's incredible. Some doctors, they, they really care and they'll take the time. And But you have to fight the insurance company, which I had a great office manager that she would fight them all day. Every day, she usually would win. But, you know, sometimes it was really hard to see these patients that they were just ignored. And it was like really a shame. It's like you, you had to examine, you had to do the procedure, you had to listen to what was going on with them. And when you did, you could make appropriate diagnoses easily. Yeah. Well, that 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 is that that might be a three part series, uh, a show where we could talk about that because I'm sure a you have hundreds of stories uh, to share, and uh, b we have hundreds of questions to ask uh, when it comes <laughs> to that, and maybe even some stories from a patient standpoint and what we've mm-hmm. dealt with. Um, I can't. One thing I cannot do, but I have one more question for you today, um, and thousands of questions in the future, but. I can't, one thing I cannot do, uh, working for General Motors, uh, which is, I call that my side job. <laughs> I call that, that's my side job. That's not my passion. That's my side job. I can't complain about the healthcare uh, when it comes to what they offer their workers uh, from from the union st- side. Um, I don't hear, I hear some nightmare stories from a salary side, but from a union side, um, I can't complain. It's, it's actually very... Um, it's it's a great it's a great benefit to have. Right. So um, I, I but I, I hear nightmares from other people who when I tell them what I dealt with and what you know how was I reimbursed what was covered they just completely their jaw hits the floor. Wow, I would have been paying seventy five percent of that out of pocket. Uh, right. So so I can't complain about that. But there's you. so many different stories out there from a patient standpoint too in terms of. Uh, the copay and what is not being covered. And, and, and so there's so many things we can get into with shows when it comes to that particular topic. Um, I got a hot seat question for you as we end today's show. And anytime I say end today's show and Joe knows this already, it could be 15 <laughs> minutes long. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to answer the question and the music's going to play and we're going to, you know, end the show right there. But it, it's, it's not, it's not a rough question. It's basically an opinion, and it might be a hard question to answer. I'm not sure, but we're going to find out. As a gastroenterologist, maybe you're going to be biased towards this question. I don't know. Is, now you talked about this as I, as I keep you in suspense. You talked about uh, when you're doing your residency and your internship and going through medical school, you're doing so much work in so many other different departments, which is covering so many different systems in our body. Right, uh, the cardiovascular system, the central nervous system, so many different systems. Is the digestive system the most important system in the human body? Well, I would say yes, because you are what you eat, and everything you put inside is going to have an effect directly on your entire body, including your brain chemistry. So, like, so, um, well, one thing that's really hot right now, hot topic, and if you're at the grocery store, you'll see the magazines about plant-based, seed-based, you know, going more the Mediterranean type of diets. But we're also focusing on the microbiome in our gut. And these are trillions of organisms that live mainly in our large intestine. And these trillions of organisms, it's kind of weird to think that we have organisms like living inside of us, but there's this huge 
environment. It's called the microbiome. And when you eat, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, it's going to have a direct effect on that microbiome, which has a direct effect on your brain. It's all about the gut, the brain, the brain, the gut. Okay. And also because the liver is included in the digestive system, then yeah, your liver is your number one detoxifying organ of your body. So is the digestive system the most important? In my opinion, it is. The other thing too, is when you're supporting your gut and you're supporting the integrity of the microbiome and the integrity of the bowel wall, you're going to try to prevent completely leaky gut syndrome, which was a syndrome we didn't even talk about when I was in training. It was like, what's that? And then what's the microbiome? Nobody talked about this stuff. Everyone just said, if you were nuts up here, your gut was a mess. That's not the case. You've got this super highway between your gut and your brain, your brain and your gut. And so when you're supporting the gut, you're supporting the brain. The other thing too about the digestive system being the most important is that 85% of your immune system sits in your gut. Okay. Now, what, what do we all just go through this the horrible pandemic? We've got about this post-COVID syndrome going on. So there's a lot of people that we have to strengthen the immune system. We got to strengthen it. And you can do that through diet and helping your microbiome because it will support your immune system. But the number one um, endocrine organ, hormonal organ of your body is your intestines. So you've got 85% of your immune system in there. You've got um, the endocrine system in there. You've got a microbiome that's supporting the brain. And you've got a liver that's your major detoxifying organ of your body. So to me, because there's so much going on and it, it's, it has a direct effect on if we have chronic inflammation, if we've got brain fog, if we've got arthritic conditions, if we've got heart conditions, pulmonary conditions, urinary conditions, reproductive conditions, it all goes back to what's going on in the gut. And so, yeah, I think it's pretty important. And, you know, this this whole, you know, shift to have people aware of their microbiome and their brain chemistry and this great super access of, you know, what's happening between these two, that's phenomenal because there's a lot of studies showing that we can fix a lot of stuff up here if we're fixing what's in our gut. And so, and I'm talking like, you know, people that have, you know, anxiety or depression, they don't sleep well, they have um, they, they can't multitask. They're in a brain fog. They, they've got so much going on that's gut related that's directly affecting their brain chemistry. So that was kind of a long answer for your question. No, that was a great answer. Hey, Joe, you come on back from the abyss. Um, let me ask you a question, Joe. On our show, we talk to Dr. Nicole Rentilla, our clinical psychologist. We talk about anxiety. We talk about fear and depression. We talk about integral fear. We talk about all these different types of things that affect our brain. We talk about what is, in my opinion, a disease of the mind when it comes to eating disorders, such as anorexia and bulimia. Uh, we talk about that. And amazingly, we have a gastroenterologist who just gave her own professional medical explanation of why the digestive let me talk <laughs> the digestive system is so important and maybe the most important system in our body and it kind of just tied into probably two-thirds of all the shows we do here on two brothers one mic so for our listeners and viewers out there when you ask us are you going in a different direction when we do shows where we talk to people about feel-good stories and people who have overcome adversity in their life. You can kind of see now, just based on what Dr. Becky just explained to you about the digestive system, why we're really not going in a different direction. We're just expanding on how important this is 
and how it ties into the rest of your body when it comes to how we eat. Um, Dr. Becky, I always say, Joe, what would you, would you say that that I just gave a great argument there, or or am I off? I wouldn't say so much an argument. I don't know who's arguing with us, but uh, <laughs> I'm looking for an argument. Somebody <laughs> argue with me. I'm, no, but you, you definitely make a good point. You know, again, it's all 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 part of one body, and uh, uh, it makes enough sense. I mean, she makes it make enough sense. You make it make enough sense. So uh, appreciate that much. Yeah. So let and you know, I almost did it again. That being said, I don't know why. Do we all have Dr. Becky? Do you have one thing that you always say and you catch yourself and say, "Okay, I got to quit saying that." Mine is that being said. And Joe Joe points that out to me on a regular basis. I don't think so. I don't know. I, no. I guess it's just me. I'm alone in this. And I didn't pick up on any of. A lot of people will get the you knows. I know that that's something that I had to. Ooh, and I still struggle. Sometimes I'll talk about the something wife? and I'll throw it. The, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and it's crazy because when you get something like that, um, after you call it to your own attention, and then you work on it and you correct it, you will pick up on everybody else doing it, and it will it makes you cringe. And it's like God, I used to sound like that, you know. <laughs> I can get it. Well, Joe is also the technical director of the show, and therefore he does the editing, and so he catches all of that stuff. Um, and, uh, so for all of our listeners and viewers out there, uh, today was more of an introduction to who Dr. Becky is, what her background is from her days, uh, living above the pharmacy that her parents ran, uh, born in Italy, raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, college internship, medical school, f- uh, fellowship. Did you, now we, you, you mentioned fellowship and we didn't get too far into that. Yeah, well, it's just the terminology that's been coined for when you subspecialize in certain areas of medicine. So, for example, like my husband at the time, he went into a pulmonary and critical care fellowship. I went into gastroenterology fellowship. So that's, you know, that's where I landed in Arizona. We both did. So they had something called a couples match back then. So actually, my husband could interview with the pulmonary group the same day I was interviewing with the GI group, and they would rank based on, you know, that we both wanted a position there. We were both picked, you know, number one for U of A. So that's how that, that oh, transpired. Okay. Yeah, fellowship, it's a term that's been around forever. So, you know, when you go into medicine, you'll do, you know, your internship, right? And then two years of residency, and then you become an internal medicine doctor. Take your boards, you become an internal medicine doctor. But where where I was training at Hahnemann, a lot of people were subspecializing. So a lot of people were going, you know, I'm going to do cardiology or endocrine or whatever. So everyone just kind of went and just did what they wanted to do subspecialty wise. That's your fellowship. And then you take your your boards after that. So you take your internal medicine boards, and then you take your subspecialty boards after that. And then every 10 years you, you reboard. But um, that's where that term comes, fellowship. Okay. And then that's where you went from Philadelphia to uh, Arizona. Arizona. You got Arizona. it. Arizona. And now uh, comfortably resting in rainy San Diego today. Um, but uh, there's so much more. Today was today was to learn so much about who you are and what you, uh, I hate to use the word so cliche, what you bring to the table uh, <laughs> as far as our podcast is concerned. And so much more about who you are and what you're involved in. Um, and and there's so many shows we'd love to do with you when it comes to gut biome, when it comes to good bat. Yeah, people always ask me, what is good gut bacteria? And so there's there, those there's those shows. And why is the digestive system so important? I think this show kind of covered it 
Uh, I think you could break off from this show and do so many other shows and, and, and the whole process. Um, and, and so that being said, <laughs> I go, <laughs> there I go. Um, I am looking forward to you being back on again because I know there's a lot of stuff you want to talk about and some things that you're excited about uh, for the future for Dr. Becky uh, and stuff that we want to get out to our viewers and our listeners so they have a better understanding of what you bring to the table. Your thoughts on that. Would you be back? Oh, absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you. Joe, Joe, what do you got for us? You got to take us out of this or what? Yeah, I think it's time. (laughs) All right. Well, until next week, I want to remind all of you, be sure to give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast service. Also, if you have any questions, thoughts, or opinions, you can leave us a message via the link in this episode's description. And finally, remember to join us every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for new episodes. Now, on behalf of Coach Tony, Dr. Becky, and myself, thanks for listening. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Dr. Becky, thank you so much for being on the show today. And we are looking forward to so many different episodes with you as we take this journey through gastroenterology, the digestive system, gut health, and all the benefits it provides. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Have a great one. How about Joe?